We're in 2 Samuel chapter 20 this morning. We're at the point in the story where Absalom's rebellion against David is over. Absalom's dead. David's making his way back to Jerusalem, and all of his troubles are over. Wrong. They're not over. So David has uh, one more minor rebellion he's going to have to take care of here. Uh, As we talked about last week, uh, Israel had come up with the idea that they were without a king because they had anointed Absalom to be the king instead of David, and they got behind him, and now he's dead. And they were looking around and said, well... We don't have a king. Oh, wait, David's still around. Let's, let's get him back as king. And while they were debating this among themselves, David went to the priest and said, hey, you go talk to my guys, Judah, over here and get them to bring me back to Jerusalem. And the priest went to Judah and convinced Judah that, hey, this is your guy, David. Let's bring him back to Jerusalem, put him back in, the, back in power in Jerusalem. And... Remember, in, in doing this, David also got Amasa, the Absalom's general, and replaced Joab, which is going to come back into the story again this morning. And in doing that, Israel got offended and said, hey, this was our idea to make David king again. Why are you guys, you Judeans, uh, stealing our idea, basically, is just how they put it. And Judah's like, hey, David's our king. He's from our tribe. He's our guy. We have the right to do this. And Israel got offended at that. And now they're, um, we're going to see what happens because of this little spat between Israel and Judah. And it's going to cause a few more problems here as they're trying to work out still some of the repercussions of Absalom's rebellion. And things aren't going to quite be worked out until the end of the chapter here. So... Uh, we're going to look at that this morning, and we'll look at chapter 20. And then by the end of chapter 20, things are going to be kind of finally settled down for David. So uh, things that started out from David's son with Bathsheba is just taking a very long time for him to settle down. All the consequences of David's sin still working themselves out here. And um, sin causes problems and issues and consequences when we don't, when we're not careful and when we don't deal with things properly. And David's finding this out in his life here. So uh, just a, a warning for us here. Uh, before we dive into the chapter, though, let's uh, go ahead and pray. Lynn, will you go ahead and open us in prayer? Amen. Okay, Second Samuel chapter 20. Let's start in verses 1 and 2. Jana, go ahead.
So Israel rebels now against David. And we see in our story a rebel is introduced. And this word rebel here is actually in Hebrew literally a word that means a worthless guy. Or he's a guy who's worthlessness. Um, so it's a Sheba, the son of Vikri. He's a Benjaminite. Who else was a Benjaminite? Saul was. And uh, remember our uh, guy from last week, um, Shimei, the guy who was uh, the stone thrower and the guy who was cursing David. So the Benjaminites seem to be a lot of trouble for, for David. I don't know if it's just that tribe that they're cantankerous or what, what's going on with them. But uh, this guy, he pronounces that Israel has no share in David. Well, this is very interesting because last week's argument, remember when Israel was uh, talking about bringing David back as king, their argument was that they had ten shares in David. And that they had more right to David than Judah did because they had more shares in David. Now this guy comes up and says, we have no share in David. So he's making kind of the opposite argument here. Uh, But basically that he's saying that David doesn't belong to us. He belongs to Judah. So this is an argument that's made later when uh, Rehoboam becomes king. And remember Rehoboam, he goes and asks, the older counselors that were Solomon's counselors that says, what should I do? And they say, well, Solomon made life hard for the people. You make it easy on them and they'll follow you. And he doesn't like that advice, so he gets a bunch of younger guys and says, what should I do? The younger guys say, well, Solomon made life hard. You make it harder. You make it really hard on them. And that's all you should do as a king. And he does that, and Israel's response is, hey, we have no share in David we're going to go do our own thing, and they split off, and that's how the kingdom gets divided. So this is the same kind of argument that Israel uses later when they divide the kingdom. Um, so the, this is, we have no share in David, is the same argument that's going to be used later. Um, so he encourages Israel to forsake David. Uh, let's, he, he basically says every man to his own tent, but Israel decides that they're going to follow this guy. So they, they decide they're going to follow Sheba here. And everybody, it seems like the other ten tribes here that, again, were interested in bringing David back just a chapter ago, they decide they're going to follow Sheba, and only the men of Judah remain loyal to David at this point to bring him back to Jerusalem. And so David goes back to Jerusalem with the men of Judah, and the rest of the ten tribes seem like they're going to follow Sheba, which is not a good thing at this point, because now David has another rebellion he has to deal with. So now there's a kind of parenthetical note here in verse 3, so we're going to deal with that. And this, you know, if you're making up a story and writing a story, you wouldn't insert this in here, because this has nothing really to do with what's going on. So this tells me that this is probably real, because this is what David's doing in the meantime is that he has to deal with some other issues because this is important. So, verse 3, who would like to read this? Lynn, is that your hand? I didn't know if that was your hand or if you were just stretching out or something. Now David came to the fifth house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his fifty concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and put them in seclusion before him, but then go into them, till they were shut up the day of their death, living in so David goes home, and he has to deal with his concubines. Uh, 
Now, who are these 10 concubines? They're the ones that were left behind. What, what's the big deal with them? What's that? Yeah, but why, why, why does he have to do what he's doing here with them? Yeah, yeah, Absalom, remember, he, he took them up to the roof of the house and he had sexual relations with them in front of everybody. And so now David comes home and they've been defiled by Absalom and he has to do something with them. And so these are the ones that were left behind, they're the ones that Absalom had these sexual relations with. And so David decides, oh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to separate them out basically from the rest of his wives. David has multiple wives and concubines at this point. So he puts them in seclusion. He gives them their own place. He continues to support them. This is a responsible thing for him to do. But he's no longer, he does not go into them. This is to say he's no longer as intimate with them. He no longer treats them as his concubines. Uh, and basically, they end up living in a state of widowhood. And I think that David's trying to do something that's honorable with them. That, you know, I'm thinking that when Absalom took them and had the sexual relations with them, that was probably not what they wanted, that they weren't choosing to do that with Absalom. And so I don't know if they've been through some stressful situations, some traumatic situations here, but I think David's trying to do something honorable with them, trying to support them, saying, hey, look, I'm going to make your life as best as possible from this point forward. I'm going to support you. I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to give you a place to live, but here you go. Um, you know, so he's, he's taking care of them. He's putting them off the side, and so he's basically dealing with them the best he can at this point in their life as they've been through this situation with Absalom now. And so David's trying, I think, to do the right thing with them at this point uh, and not making their life more difficult than it could be at this point. So David deals with them. Verse 3, and then we get this kind of parenthetical note because he has to do something at this point. And then we go back to our story about the rebellion because this is kind of the big thing that's on David's radar now, that ten of the tribes are basically leaving him. So he comes home, he has to deal with the concubines, but now he has this political issue to deal with. And so as a king, you have all kinds of stuff that you have to take care of. So we go back to verse 4, and it goes back to the main story here. Verse 4, who would like to read? Josiah, go ahead. And the king said to him, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days, and the present for yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time that David had appointed. And David said to Abishai, Now keep the son of victory, who is more harm than Absalom. Take the Lord's servant to pursue him, lest he finds himself fortified cities. So I, I titled this part, Amasa is late. Just to give it a title here. But David calls Amasa. Remember, Amasa has just been promoted to general for David. And David did this kind of as a political strategy to get uh, those who were serving Absalom on his side. So he deposed Joab as general and promoted Amasa. And he gives them a job. He says, get the men of Judah together, get the army of Judah together, 
I'm giving you three days to do this. Well, he goes out, and after three days pass, he doesn't, he doesn't come back with the army. Now, this could be maybe this was a difficult task to do, and he couldn't get the army together in three days, but he doesn't make it in the appointed time. And it seems like after three days, the army's not back, so David calls Abishai. This is Joab's brother. He doesn't call Joab. Joab's not the general anymore, so he calls Joab's brother, and he really needs to deal with this guy because the more time that he's giving Sheba, the more time he has to get away to fortify himself in a city, so he needs to get this done with. So he says, Abishai, I need you to go after this guy. Take who we have. Take my servants. Pursue him. Take whoever you can get. We need to get this guy. Um, so he takes David's servants, he takes the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and these guys, it seems to be, these guys might be David's like elite bodyguard, from what we can tell. Um, when you look at where they show up in Scripture, these two groups seem to always be grouped together, and they always seem to be kind of around David. And so they may be his kind of elite bodyguard type people. Um, they're not mentioned often, but when they are mentioned, they're kind of this kind of elite group. So that, that may be who they are. They may be a special bodyguard the king had. And then take all the mighty men. And so he takes this group of kind of elite fighters, it seems like, and just go after this guy, go get this guy. Um, and it says that uh, he took Joab's men. Now, it's Abishai doing this again. It's interesting that it's called Joab's men because up until a few moments ago, this was Joab's army. But it's Abishai that's leading it because Joab's not the general anymore. And I think this is a, a big point here that it, it's still, these are Joab's guys. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this, this is building up here. These are still Joab's guys. These are still Joab's men. This is still Joab's army, even though Joab's not leading them. This is Joab's people that are fighting. And so... So David, David's you know, very concerned about this, and, and he even makes the point that if this guy gets away, this could be worse for us than even the whole thing with Absalom. This could be a much worse situation for us. We need to deal with this now. You need to go and take care of this. And Amasa's not here. He hasn't brought the troops back. We need to deal with this now. So that's basically what's going on here, is that he's sending Abishai to, out to deal with this with Joab's people. So, interesting enough, probably one of the mighty men that goes along, Joab. Because we see that Joab's going to show up in the story in just a second here, verses 8 through 13. Joanna.
And so we see here Joab, in typical Joab fashion, murders Amasa. And again, you know, Joab is not very happy. I'm sure that he was demoted from being the general of the army, from being the basically David's second in command. And so he takes matters into his own hand again. So Amasa finally catches up to the to the army and that large stone at Gibeon. And Joab's there. Abishai is, of course, Joab's brother, so why would Joab not be there? He's dressed in his battle gear. This makes sense. They're pursuing the enemy, so he'd be dressed up. And interestingly, it says his sword fell out. I think that his sword probably fell purposely. Yeah, he, he, he wanted the sword in his hand. And Joab greets Amasa. Are you in health, my brother? Let me give you a kiss. Let me grab you by the beard and give you a kiss. Um, a lot of commentators think that he had the sword in his left hand, so Amasa didn't really realize that the sword was there because normally he'd grab his, have a sword in his right hand, may grab his beard in his right hand and the sword in the left hand, and nice thrust to the stomach. Um, he pretends to go kiss him, and Amasa does not see the sword, and Joab stabs him in the stomach, and Amasa dies. If you know anything about killing someone, if you stab them in some place like the heart or you know, places like the head or stuff like that, they'll die quick. If you stab them in the stomach, they might not die as quick. So when I talk about later, he's walling in his blood. He might be in the process of dying still. Um, and so Amasa dies, but maybe not quickly. And because he's dying, Joab and Abishai, they go on to pursue Sheba because now that the general's dead... Who's going to lead the army? Well, why not the former general, Joab? So Joab takes it into his hands to lead the army. As they're leaving, one of Joab's men steps up and makes a proclamation. And he goes by Amasa, and here's the old general, he's dying or dead. If you're for Joab and David, follow Joab. So if you're for Joab, and maybe not everybody there is for Joab, but if you're for David... Follow Joab. He's, he's fighting for the king. It doesn't seem to have the effect that maybe this guy thought because everybody seems to, to be watching Amasa die. They, they kind of stand there. They weren't moving. They're standing by the highway there. I, I don't know if this is kind of like, you know, when you, you're driving down the road and you see a crash and everybody kind of slows down and they're kind of looky-loos and kind of, what's going on over there? It, it bothers me. I'm like trying to get someplace, and all of a sudden everybody's slowing down. Why is everybody slowing down? And you get by, and everybody's slowing down and watching the car crash. It's like, just keep moving. You're not going to do anything by slowing down. You're making things worse. Just keep going. You're not, gonna, you're not helping by slowing down and seeing what's happening. Just go. You know, so I don't know if they're just, just standing there watching to see or if they're doing it out of respect for Amasa or what, why they're there. But nobody's moving. And so this guy's like, okay. I'm going to move him off the road into the field, cover him with a cloak. And finally, it seems to get people moving. And they're like, okay, fine, we'll, we'll move on now. And so finally, they start moving. And finally, they start following Joab and doing their job. But um, So anyways, Joab murders Amasa, and he takes over the lead of the army at this point. And now they're off pursuing Sheba like David wanted, but now the wrong guy is leading. So... So Joab murders Amasa. 
Let's go on and see what happens next. Lemuel, go ahead. And he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth Metchah and all the Perites. So they were gathered together and also went after Sheba. Then they came and besieged him to the Abel of Beth Metchah. And they cast up the siege around against the saints and it stood by the ram. So here a wise woman confronts Joab. Now Joab continues to pursue Sheba. Um, He he starts to gather people from Israel. So I don't know, um, remember all of Israel kind of followed the Sheba guy, but maybe they're starting to lose a little bit of heart here as Joab and David's mighty men are pursuing Sheba because it seems like he's starting to gather people from Sheba from Israel, and they're maybe turning on this guy Sheba. Uh, so he starts pursuing them from Abel to Beth Makan and to the Beerites, and he finally catches up with this guy. And he's, he's in the city here. And they besiege him in, in Sheba and Abel of Beth Makan. And um, they cast a siege mount against the city, and they, they get up on the rampart, and they're ready to tear down the wall. So they're starting to batter the wall. And they apparently have enough that they're going to get into the city. So they're 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 ready to get into the city and really destroy the city. And the writing's on the wall for this guy because this wise woman calls out and says, "Hold on a second, I need to talk to Joab." And Joab comes and says, "Okay, I'm here. What do you need to say?" And the woman identifies herself and she describes herself as this wise woman. She calls for Joab. And she identifies herself as, I'm the woman who, I settle disputes. That's what I do. I'm here and people would come to me for wisdom, for settling these disputes. And you're coming and you're going to destroy a city and you're going to destroy one who's like a mother in Israel. And are you sure you want to do this, Joab? Because you're, you're about to swallow up the inheritance of the Lord. You need to think about this, Joab. You're about to make a big mistake here. And Joab, for all his faults here, when he's confronted with, with some really deep wisdom, he, he, he actually stops and thinks about it. Because we see that Joab, when confronted with some wise wisdom, is actually going to make a good choice here. So um, let's look at what Joab's answer is. Verses 20 to 22. Miriam, go ahead.
So Sheba is delivered to Joab, or at least his head is. Yeah, we see she didn't actually do it herself. But uh, so Joab's moved by the woman's argument. He he's he hears this and he's like, "Okay, wait a second. No, no, I'm not. Far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy." Now, Joab, as we've seen throughout this whole story and throughout his life, he's not opposed to killing or destroying people. Okay, you know. So him saying, "Far be it from me to swallow up or destroy," is you know, okay, Joab. Yeah. You, you don't mind destroying things. You don't mind killing people. That's not against your character necessarily. But he's moved by her argument. He's like, no, I, I'm not that type of guy. That's not me. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not here to destroy you guys. Let me tell you, I'm just trying to catch this rebel Shiva. That's all we want. That's all we're here for. He's raised his hand against David. We're just here for him. If you deliver him, we'll spare the city. Okay? If you can do that, we'll let you guys survive, we'll let you guys live. So, so he listens to her argument, and he's willing to make a deal with the city. He's, he stops and listens and, and hears her wisdom and says, okay, well, I'll make a deal with you. You, you. you give me Sheba, we'll spare the city. That's fine. And the woman says, okay, watch. His head will appear over the wall. We'll make it happen. <laughs> and the woman goes back and it says, by her wisdom, she went to the people by her wisdom, and they cut off his head. So I'm, I'm guessing the woman goes, hey, it says, hey, um, David's army's outside. They're going to kill us. They are going to destroy us. Now, option number one is we let them destroy us, and we're all dead. Option number two is we give them this guy's head, and we all live. What do you guys think? And the elders are going, well... You got, you got a point there. Um, I say we go with option two. So, yeah, so, so she goes in there with her wisdom and convinces them that they give him the head of Sheba. So they cut off his head, and sure enough, they toss over the wall to Joab. Joab, at least, you know, one thing, he's, he's, he may be a murderer, he may be, you know, a conniver, he may be, you know, all these things, but he gives his word he's honest about that you know i got his head i'm i'm good you guys keep your city i'll go back to i'll go back to david in jerusalem you kept your promise i'll keep mine so he withdraws from there leaves them have their city he has the head of the traitor and the rebellion's over um and so everything works out well because joab stopped and listened to the wise woman and her wisdom and so good for joab and then we get this little note at the end of verse, uh, at the end of the chapter, verses 23 through 26. One more reader. Nathan, you want to go ahead? And Joab was over all the army of Israel. Benai, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Adoram was in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahavud, was recorder. Sheba was scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. So I call this David's counselors. And it gives a list. Joab is the commander of the army. Now remember, up until moments ago, it was Amasa, but he's dead. 
David goes ahead and lets Joab be the commander of the army again. Um, I'm not sure that David would necessarily have been happy about this because you know Joab murdered his way back into command, and that doesn't seem like you know David would really appreciate that. But again, Joab is probably the most qualified, and you know you put somebody else in there, maybe Joab kills that guy too. So maybe this is the most simple way to deal with that. Uh, Benaniah, he's over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and again, this, I think, from what I understand and what I read, I think this is kind of David's personal bodyguard, so he might be the leader of them. Adoram, he's, uh, it says in charge of the revenue in the New King James. Uh, there's a couple other versions that uh, say the, the forced labor, and that's literally what the Hebrew word is, is, is forced labor. And so, this is kind of the the slave labor almost, um, and so it might be be the funds for the the people to keep the people working who were uh, indentured servants or, or slave labor. Um, Jehoshaphat, the son of Helud, uh, uh, is the recorder. Uh, this comes from a Hebrew word that means to remember, so kind of a historian almost. Uh, Shiva was the scribe, and, and when we hear scribe, a lot of times we think of many like the New Testament scribes who were like the people who were copied down the, the books of the law and stuff. And so they were um, people who like knew the law, and that's why they had a special position. But this is probably more of a, um, a political type person. So as a scribe, probably somebody kept, kept records for the king of like his judgments and stuff like that. So probably to the king and not like the scribes in the Gospels. This is like the king's personal scribe. He kept records of the king's judgments and things that he did. Uh, so that's probably what he was doing. Zadok and Abathar were the priests. We've seen them a number of times in these chapters, uh, helping out the king and stuff. And then Erethe, the Jerite, he was the chief minister, uh, maybe like a prime minister or something like that. He ran some of the king's stuff like that. So those were the, some of the people that were listed here. Um, later on, there's more lists of different people that served David, but this is a list that we're given here at this point of people that served David and helped him out that call us counselors. So that's the end of chapter 20. Um, a couple takeaways, and um, as I was thinking through this, I, I was thinking through Proverbs for some reason. Uh, I don't know why, but um, it kind of two different people in here that were kind of main people in the story, Shiva and Joab. Uh, and Shiva reminded me of the, the wicked person who, you know, they plot wickedness. And people who plot wickedness, they often suffer from their own wickedness. And it's made me think a lot of the Proverbs uh, talk about that. Uh, but Shiva, the son of victory, is described as a worthless man. He chose to pursue wickedness instead of righteousness, and the, his pursuit of wickedness was his undoing. You know, if he would have not rebelled against God's anointed and God's king, David would have never pursued him, and he would have never led to his death. Uh, Proverbs says a lot about the end of those who pursue wickedness. And I listed several Proverbs here. In Proverbs 10.29, The way of the Lord is strength for the upright, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. Uh, Proverbs 11.5, The righteousness of the blameless will direct his ways aright, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. Proverbs 11.19, As righteousness leads to life, so he who pursues evil pursuits to his, it to his own death. 
Proverbs 13.6, Righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. Proverbs 21.12, The righteous God will wisely consider the house of the wicked, overthrowing the wicked for their wickedness. In Proverbs 21.15, It's a joy for the just to do justice, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. And I, I think that this Sheba guy, that's this was exactly what happened to him. He plotted wickedness against David. And his wickedness ended up overthrowing him and causing his own destruction. And I think that um, the way of sin leads to death. And I think it's not just a physical death. I think it leads to all kinds of consequences in our life. It leads to all kinds of destruction, not just physical destruction. it, It leads to hardships, it leads to problems and stuff like that, and our wickedness leads to consequences and I think that these proverbs, the, the things that they say, this is, this is true and we need to realize that, we need to trust that that's true and know that that is a consequence when we choose to disobey what God says for us and that we may think that when we do what we want to do instead of what God wants us to do, that, hey, that's, uh, that's going to be fun for us, that's going to be enjoyable, that's going to benefit us. But in the end, our wickedness always leads to our downfall. And God promises that. And we need to trust that that's true, and we need to lead, let that be a motivation for us to say, no, I'm going to forsake that wickedness. I'm going to forsake that unrighteousness in our life because that's one reason why I want to pursue the things that God wants me to pursue. Because I know that wickedness doesn't lead to anything good. Wickedness always leads to destruction, always leads to uh, to to an end that's not good for me. And I, I think this is an example in this passage. I think the Proverbs tells us that. I think that the Bible teaches that over and over, that sin does not help us. It hurts us in our life. And we need to trust that that's true, and we need to trust that God's word is faithful and that what it tells us is right. And when God tells us that something is right and that we need to do it, that we need to believe that it's right and good for us. Um, even if at the time when we're tempted and when we think that we know better, uh, that we don't know better, that God knows what's best for us. So that, that's my first takeaway this morning. Um, second one is looking at Joab. And again, I, overall, I don't think Joab's a very righteous person at all. I think Joab is mostly a very wicked person from what I can tell. But every once in a while, he has these, these points where you kind of go, well, he kind of did a good thing there. And here, Joab stopped and listened to the wise woman and changed his course. I think that's a good example um, he was going to tear down and destroy the city, and the wise woman stopped and said, here, here's some wisdom for you. And again, it made me think of Proverbs. Proverbs tells us that the wise person listens to wise counsel. And again, I'm going to give you a few Proverbs. Proverbs 1.5, A wise man will hear an increase in learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. I think that reminds us that we need to listen to wisdom, and we need to increase in learning, and attain wise counsel. We need to continue to find wisdom. 
Proverbs 12:15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. And I think the idea of heeding counsel is not just, you know, hearing it, it's taking it in and doing something with it. It's taking the counsel and saying, okay, I'm going to change my course because of what I heard. Uh, Proverbs 15:31, the ear that hears the rebuke of life will abide among the wise. And so the, the rebukes of life there... It's the idea that somebody's telling you you need to change your course, that you're not going in the right direction. You need to change it. So the ear that hears that and changes their course because of it, they're going to live among the wise. They're going to, do, they're going to benefit from that. Um, again, rebuke is more effective for a wise man than 100 blows on a fool. Why is it more effective for a wise man? Because a wise man is going to hear that rebuke, and they're going to change what they're doing. They're going to change their course. They're going to change their direction. Then Proverbs 21, 11, when a scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise, but when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. And again, instruction has the idea that you're instructed with the idea of you're going to learn something from it, you're going to build on that, and you're going to do something different with it because you're learning something new and you're putting it into practice. So um, I, I think that that's something that we can remember is that we need to be learning and growing. We need to be learning and then living it as we've been being taught by Pastor Dean that it's not just learning it, but it's living it out in our lives. So, so those are kind of two takeaways I got from this morning. Um, any other thoughts or questions or comments that anybody would like to share? I was very quick this morning. I don't know what's wrong with me. Ted. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and obviously, obviously too, even I, I picked and chose Proverbs so that you could go and back and read these whole chapters and get all kinds of examples of things to do and not to do. Um, you know, it's, it, it's kind of hard sometimes when you just pick and choose verses out of things and go, well, here's, here's one verse, well, there's so much more to that, and um, you know, trying to cover a little bit in a short amount of time. There's the Word of God is so full of stuff that so much instruction that that it's like trying to drink out of a fire hose. There's just too much to, <laughs> to cover it all. Any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, the other teachers are gonna think there's something wrong with me today, so. Go ahead and close in prayer then. Nathan, will you close us in prayer?